Well, thank you all for coming today. I'm uh, John Maniscalco, the Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute. And today's Hill Briefing's discussion, or Hill Briefing discussion, is on uh, housing finance reform, past, present, and future. And uh, just about every explanation of the 2008 uh, financial crisis contains some role for our mortgage finance system. Um, and although the government's major response to that crisis, the Dodd-Frank Act, um, attempted to improve mortgage standards, these efforts have not addressed the uh, vast mortgage guarantees and moral hazards contained in our system. And many on Capitol Hill believe that without government guarantees, the housing market uh, just cannot properly function. And there are several interest groups who you probably have seen around here who do not dissuade members of Congress from that view. But evidence, evidence suggests that a private housing market can work just fine without government backing. And uh, it should also be noted that government guarantees do not eliminate risk. They transfer trillions of dollars worth of risk to the taxpayer who are on the hook in case uh, there is need for another potential huge bailout. And so to discuss how we got to this point and what we can, or what reform should look like, we have two distinguished callers uh, with us today. First up, we'll have uh, Kevin Villani. Dr. Villani is a principal of the, uh, I'm sorry, of University Financial Associates and an international economic and financial consultant. Most recently, he was vice chairman of Imperial Credit Commercial Mortgage Investment Corporation. Uh, he served in various capacities at Freddie Mac, including chief economist and chief financial officer. And prior to that, he was a deputy assistant secretary and chief economist of the Department of Housing and Urban Development. And uh, second, we'll have Mark Calabria. He's the Cato Institute's director of financial regulation studies. Prior to joining uh, Cato in 2009, he spent six years at the Senate Banking Committee uh, as a senior professional staff. And in that position, uh, Mark handled issues related to housing, mortgage finance, economics, banking, and insurance for Senator Richard Shelby. So with that, I will turn it over to Kevin. Thanks. Um, the short form of my resume is I could never hold a job very long, so um, I have a lot of experience. I'm going to go very quick. I'm always uh, stunned by the irony of a, of a free market think tank, a libertarian think tank, serving a free lunch, but um, it is real. Um, I'm going to go very fast with the slides so I give Mark a chance. So anybody wants them, feel free to email me. I'll send them to him later because I might skip some. Or you can buy my book, limited edition on Amazon, but you can, you can get it uh, 99 cents, I think. Um, I left Washington 30 years ago, and uh, it's always good to be back. This is a very magical city. Magical in the sense that it's really Disneyland East. It's a, it's a fantasy land where uh, myths are born and they grow. Um, one of the things that happened when I left 30 years ago was Chairman Gorbachev was trying to save the Soviet system with glasnost, if any of you remember that openness, and restructuring uh, perestroika. He was a total failure, right? Because the system had such inherent flaws that it couldn't be saved. And I thought of that yesterday when it, when it comes to the housing finance system of the United States. Um, in a market system, everything is determined by the interaction of borrowers, savers, and lenders. The system, the, the instruments, the prices, and there's not really a lot for politicians and regulators to do. They're supposed to um, create a, a system of a rule of law and hopefully promote competition. In a crony capitalist system, politicians determine everything with political bargaining among all of their constituents, the pricing and the, and the distribution and the instruments. And there's not much left for the market to do. They do the custodial type things of originating and servicing, and they usually take the blame for when things go bad. We obviously had a crony capitalist system that we pretended was a market system. And the problem with that is we've been bargaining over how to fix that system for six years, but there's really a complete denial about the nature of the system that we had in the first place and an attempt to try to restore that system. So we've got to go through the sta stages that result from a death of a, of a system. And ultimately, I'm going to try to quickly go through the depression that will set in when we consider economic reality, and then we can talk seriously about what the best thing to do for the housing finance system. I will talk about all of these topics. Um, they're all policy issues that have yet to be addressed. Um, you can get them on the slideshow. Very simply, for consumer finance, the, that involves the borrowing, saving, and insurance decision of consumers. And those are not only all tied together, they're tied together with their investment decisions. 
<clears throat> and more importantly, investment decisions are tied with their ultimate work decisions. So consumers don't make any of these decisions in a vacuum. They make them all simultaneously. And the pre-political private market for consumers was entirely mutual associations. My first savings account was at the Provident uh, in Boston sometime after 1816. Um, I worked at uh, Mass Mutual Life Insurance in 1970. We had customers with contracts dating back to the 1800s that had saved with us for 40, 45 years in life insurance contracts, and now we're getting uh, fixed annuity payments for the next 30 to 40 years as long as they lived, and these were all fixed nominal contracts. So lifetime savings, and the amazing thing about it is, we had no regulators. This system worked. Savings and loans, mutual savings banks, mutual insurance associations. Now why did it work? Well, the interests of the borrowers, the savers, the intermediaries were all balanced. We used capital requirements on the part of the borrowers and on the part of the lenders to balance and mitigate their um, incentive conflicts. Uh, we used actuarial pricing so that the borrowers w weren't disfavored, the savers weren't disfavored, and that's really why the system worked. What happens when we introduced politics into that equation? Well, very simply, two big things. Savers and borrowers and lenders those protections both have the same impact. They cause people to over-borrow, to over-leverage, and when you borrow and over-leverage with somebody else's money, you tend to invest less carefully with, with things that don't have as high a return. We call it malinvestment. And when the investments don't generate enough return to cover the borrowing costs, what do you do? You default, okay? And the second phenomena, which is un not unrelated to the first, is that social insurance, reduces not only the incentive to save, but it reduces the incentive to work because somebody else is, is covering the risk. Now, these things aren't actually all that controversial in theory. The question is, how big an impact did they have in practice? Um, and the, the biggest one is saving investment over the life cycle because this is the, the benefit or the problem of compound interest. On the way out here, I was reading The Economist magazine, and there is a story in the back of that magazine about a social um, child psychologist experiment that's been going on for 30 or 40 years. And the child psychologist asked young children the following question, would you accept one marshmallow now, or we'll give you two marshmallows in 15 minutes? And they found over time that the child who took the one marshmallow now was much more likely to uh, be a criminal when he grew up. And of course, if the child grabbed the marshmallow, ate it, and demanded two more right now, then he became a politician. <laughs> um, so this simple moral hazard that was introduced by political distortions in the system has been the source of every financial crisis that we've had, particularly the savings and loan crisis that we had in the 1980s, and also the subprime lending crisis that we just had. And I would say that the lack of savings, because of the, in, the impact of social insurance, also had a big impact on uh, the last crisis. And what happens when you suppress individual risks by protecting them is that you create systemic risks. So the source of all of our financial crises is really politics and regulators repressing risks which end up becoming systemic. This is really a, a theory known uh, as uh, popularized by Minsky many decades ago and explains all of our financial crises. Um, so the question that we want to address is how did the U.S., which had a market system that worked perfectly good, become a crony capitalist system that, that is continually prone to failure? And there's four answers to that. The first is that the populist concerns with commercial banking go back to the very roots of the country. The second is, and they spilled over into consumer finance. The second is that when you create something, politicians create something, there's mission creep. You end up doing much more than you thought you were going to originally do. The third is that once we imposed uh, transparent budget requirements, we tried to do things off budget that had real costs to the treasury but that weren't budgeted and voted on. And that's political heroin for politicians. And the fourth is that obviously with the Great Depression there was a lot of economic stress, so we formed a safety net, and again, with mission creep, that grew tremendously. Very quickly, the U.S. banking system was fragile by design. Why? Well, Thomas Jefferson wrote the Northwest Passages 
not for plantations, but the size of the family farm. And for the next hundred years, the entire country was settled by family farmers, and those farmers were both households and business. So there was very much populist concern with how they got credit. Um, but the Constitution left bank chartering to the state, so you couldn't have a national bank to distribute money uh, nationwide. And what that meant was the banks always failed with, with respect to the farm crisis, but they would never give up this right. Why? Bank chartering fees accounted for as much as a third of all state revenues. This was a form of economic rent that they could tax the banking system, even though this was fragile by design. So this was the source of all populist concern in banking for the next 100 years. Um, so how did we go from only state banking to interstate finance? We had interstate trade, but we didn't have an interstate finance system. And we went to second best. We created all of these institutions. We now call them government-sponsored agencies. They all came about to try to get around this problem of only state banking. And they all started with very limited missions. Um, to provide liquidity because the banks were illiquid. And the word liquidity is the most misused word in the English language. We'll say a little bit about that later. So we created these things very limited in scope. They didn't work for what they were supposed to do at the time, but they, they're, um, they expanded to new missions later on. Deposit insurance was the worst solution to the wrong problem. The Glass-Steagall Act that was passed um, actually embedded the fragility of the banking system because the universal banks that were bigger and more diversified didn't fail. But in order to save the economic rents that were being generated by that state system, um, we passed Glass-Steagall, and then we added on deposit insurance, which had failed everywhere that it was tried. Um, and we did it anyway. The, the big banks didn't want to do it because it was a cross-subsidy to the small state banks that were failing. The savings and loans refused to go along for that same reason, but they were forced to take their own insurer the next year. Now, this is just, just a little bit of theory. but. Modigliani and Miller is, a, Miller is a famous economic theory. It says banks shouldn't care how much equity or debt they have because a given amount of risk will be priced a given way. But they do care a lot for two reasons. When the government stands behind the debt, it says stays cheap no matter how risky it really is. And the second thing is we tax equity before you can pay the equity holders. We don't tax debt. And this is a huge incentive for everybody, all the banks and financial institutions to leverage as much as possible. Um, and so the bank capital went down from 20% to 5%, the regulatory minimum, immediately. And those incentives still exist today. So in the post-war period, um, America was the, on the winning side of the war and we weren't devastated. So we had things pretty good and we had a lot of economic stability. I will only point out that home ownership rose to its current level in the 60s, the home ownership rate to about 65%, totally funded by private savings and loan deposits, these mutual institutions and mutual savings banks. Um, now, the home ownership at the time was considered a very good thing. There were no political incentives. There were no real subsidies that we can speak of. But the idea that people with, Amer with the, uh, America was a land of opportunity and people could save, they had to save 20, 30, 40 percent. And this was savings they might not have otherwise done anyway. And savings is a good thing. Leverage is a bad thing, but savings is a good thing. And even after they bought a house, they had to either have a sinking account or they had to pay the amortization of the mortgage. So they continued to save. They didn't take cash out. It increased savings, reduced consumption and benefited everybody. 80% of the small businesses that were formed in the country. I don't know, almost every serviceman came back who had worked at a motor pool, he formed a gas station. Where did he get the money? He got it from his homeowner equity. So this savings and investment process was incredibly beneficial at this time. Now what happened? The political bargain for savings and loans changed dramatically. Once you introduce protection, you introduce regulation. And regulation always morphs into a financial repression. So the political bargaining started in the savings and loans that give us cheap money, give us um, low capital requirements. So they did all those things. Then the building side said, give us fixed rate mortgages that are prepayable and assumable. And they did all those things. They had to invest. 30-day money into 30-year mortgages makes no sense at all. And then when interest rates started to go up due to the guns and butter, the Gray Panthers came in and said, we're not going to accept deposit rate ceilings. We want market rates of interest. So we give them that too. Well, in this political bargain, things are doomed to fail, and they always do, and they did. The new political bargain at commercial banks was we introduced uh, the, the CRA. There's no big deal. This was a little bit of economic rent for the survivors, economic rents being that they had to take a little bit less profit or loss for a handful of mortgages that they would do. 
But in the 80s, it became a bigger deal. Remember, this was all to get the permission to merge or to open branches. That very thing that reduces the risk of the system and the fragility, they were charged a price for because the, the um, government wanted to extract rents in, in, in return. And in the 80s, the insurance fund for the savings and loans was bankrupt, so the way they hid that was we would charge banks uh, the, a fee, take over the deadweight loss, and we'll give you the right to do what you should be able to do anyway in branch. And this became very expensive, so this is the real deregulation that we talked about. We eventually deregulated um, the ability to branch and, and merge across state lines. Um, and, and that's really it, but you still needed regulatory permission, and even after it was made legal, in order to branch. And because it was so important, the banks in the 90s signed $7 trillion in commitments under CRA. And it had only been like 20 million, 30 million in the past. How much was $7 trillion? All of it, more than the entire mortgage stock. Why did they do that? Because no one bank knew what the other ones were doing. It was just trying to get an advantage so it could grow and take over the market. The new political bargain at Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, um, Fannie Mae was a zombie in the 1980s, its, it's liabilities were well below, well above the size of its assets. How many watched The uh, Walking Dead? Yeah, there we go, it's a, it's a pretty good show, right? And the zombies, you can't kill them, and they live off of the living, which is exactly what Fannie Mae did when the savings and loans were driven down because they can issue all the debt they want at the government rate, no matter how insolvent they are. This is what happens to zombies. And because they can stay as zombies, they can, generate profits. And they generated so much profit that they were distributing a good part of that in economic rents, not just to borrowers, but to politicians that you work for in terms of political patronage to the managers. Half of the uh, economic rents they generated didn't go to borrowers. It went to other uh, members of the political elite. So they passed a law that says, well, we got to spread that around a little bit more. But when they spread it around, it added on the homeownership, afford uh, the homeownership goal of 70%. The GSE share of the market had risen from zero to 50%, and there was no increase in the home ownership rate. Now you had to raise it to 70%. What was supposed to happen? Well, the, the GSEs had to make a major push at the bottom end of the market. And this all happened in the late 1990s, coming to roost in 2000. Um, and then my boss and your former boss um, set a, a requirement that they had to maintain a 50% market share for, from competing with the, the private lenders in this market. And I, this, I'm going to go pretty fast here, but um, this required a tremendous leverage to increase those subsidies. So the whole system, they're leveraging at about 100 to 1, and they're taking enormous risks to try to make money to subsidize the loans that they've got to make. Um, so the housing bubble just kept on inflating. It couldn't have inflated without a, a zombie that you can't kill to continue to fuel that bubble. That's the, that's the role of the agencies. Um, and, and, and so the bubble inflated until by the time it burst, the losses were tremendous. And this part of it is, is not uh, sufficiently understood. The rules for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were never changed. They still required 20% cash down payments and, or private mortgage insurance, but it didn't happen. Most of it was zero down, or very close to zero down. And they said, when, zero, when we get zero down, we get excess leverage and we get um, malinvestment and we end up with a systemic crisis. And all of that zero down was because there were second mortgages made that were funded by the banking system. So it is true that Fannie and Freddie didn't bear the biggest part of the loss, but they were instrumental to keeping the bubble um, to growing to systemic proportions. So uh, you can read this. We wouldn't have had the bubble if we had had normal down payments and housing. It just wouldn't have happened. We needed to have this incredible excess leverage to bring the system down. The Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission was then a political commission scheduled to investigate this. And it was explicitly said that it will be modeled after the PCORA Commission, which was a sham to create Glass-Steagall. Glass-Steagall did exactly the wrong thing in the wake of the Great Depression. So the purpose of this commission was denial, obfuscate, and cover up, and it was beautifully done in that regard, and it suggested doing exactly the same things that had gone wrong, doing more of that in the future. Um, so we've gone through the anger part of this. The, the anger was uh, the anger at Wall Street bailouts. That's what the Fed does. It bails out banks. And the implicit deal was, you'll do this, and you'll implement our housing program. And if you go bust, we'll bail you out. And forget 
Everything you read that comes out of here in Washington in terms of accounting, right? Because the explicit bailout costs that they put on the budget have nothing to do with the cost. It's the implicit cost. Remember, Fannie Mae was a zombie. If you can keep a zombie alive and then give it no tax, very low tax liabilities and very cheap debt, it's the franchise value that bails it out, not those costs that they report on the budget. Those are a joke. Okay, um, then, so the, the biggest bailout myth that was exposed was that somehow government uh, securities that are backed by fixed rate mortgages are liquid. There's no such thing. Their price is going to be very volatile because they're lo long term. And we did a lot of short term financing of um, illiquid instruments. And that's been a root cause of many of the financial crises in the past. So the response of the two big, to, uh, the response of, of bailing out Wall Street was, well, we got to bail out Main Street too, and there were a lot of ad hoc um, mecha mechanisms that tried to do that. But the bottom line was that the moral hazard for bailing out borrowers made the likelihood of repayment in the future even greater. That problem got worse, and. Once you give franchise value back to these banks and bail them out, then you can take that back in the context of penalties um, through the legal system. And so Countrywide, for instance, was bought by Bank of America, and Bank of America subsequently paid $100 billion in penalties for loans that, uh, for, for sins that Countrywide supposedly committed. The Economist magazine reported that they saw no illegalities over $200 billion. Some of you lawyers might disagree, um, but no illegalities over $200 billion in penalties. And they said that the US legal system is an extortion racket. Well, they're really saying that you're extracting rents back from those that you bailed out, um, and it's part of a crony capitalist system. Um, so what did the new Dodd-Frank system do? It really doubled down on the old crony capitalist system. It tried to maintain all of the same elements in terms of banking regulation, more of the same. And with respect to housing, it really didn't do anything. It didn't address um, housing policy. It didn't address the GREs. It didn't address fixed rate mortgages. All of that was left for the future. Um, What's happened in the interim? The government's taken over 90, 95% of the market, and we're still talking about what are we going to do about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. But the nature of that um, discussion is not really a policy discussion. It's political bargaining going on here in town about who's going to, how much economic rent can we get these zombie institutions to generate, and who's going to get it? The shareholders, the management, the, the Treasury trying to, is trying to get those economic rents. Uh, the regulators are trying to get the economic rents, and of course the affordable housing lobby is trying to get the economic rents. It's all the same thing as we had before. It's a little bit like Gorbachev trying to save um, the Soviet system. Dodd-Frank tried to save securitization, but this was an oxymoron because the securitization was a, was a form that had no capital in it to, the, to begin with, so it was never going to be a, a capitalized mechanism of securities funding. And there was supposed to be an exception for the true really safe mortgages, a minimum down payment of 20%. By historical standards, that would be pretty low. And, and how did the, the regulators determine that rate? The housing, affordable housing lobby weighed in, and it's now zero. QRM and QM are zero down payment requirements. Um, so I'll just summarize this. We started with a fractured system that was too fragile, and we ended up with a crony system that was exactly what the founding fathers were trying to avoid, where we have banks that are too big to fail doing everything, and then we don't have any effective control over them. This was really the, our worst fears. Um, I grew up near Willie Sutton. You know, Willie Sutton, the bank robber, wasn't the brightest guy because uh, he got arrested a lot and they beat him up in jail. But he knew what question to ask, right? He asked, where's the money? How much of it is there? And how do I get my hands on it? That's the essential question that I always asked at HUD when we were trying to fund Ginnie Mae Securities or at Freddie Mac when we were trying to fund Freddie Mac Securities or in the private sector. Where's the money? There's no point in negotiating political bargains until you know you can fund the loans. So I'm going to ask you that question. Um, so here, historically, is where the money came from. Historically, it came from households, deposits, um, being saved in mostly savings loans, mutual savings banks. Capital market funding came along a little bit later due to their retirement savings. Um, then there was the Bernanke savings glut. Um, and, and recently, we've had uh, the chairman printing money through QRO, Q, um, Queen Elizabeth <coughs> 1, 2, and 3, excuse me. So we've had the Fed printing money for MBS, and this can't go on forever. Just a quick few pictures. Deposits covered mortgage finance almost through 1980, a little bit of retirement savings, but you can see the retirement savings are starting to shrink. Um, we've had no 
household saving other than for retirement savings for 30 years. That little blip at the end of it is mostly just debt forgiveness, and retirement savings was shrinking at exactly the same time it was supposed to be expanding. Basic picture, we should have had skyrocketing housing savings during the last 30 years because of baby boomers like me that were going to retire. Instead, it plummeted to zero, and households are becoming more and more leveraged through that entire period. What are the consequences? Why did that happen? Well, I gave you the third moral hazard, the, the, um, the fact that when, you, when the government provides social insurance, people tend not to save. And this is not, and one, of the, one of the other big myths, that Ronald Reagan and, and Tip O'Neill sat down and decided to turn a pay-as-you-go system into a funded retirement system over a few drinks. I have no doubt they sat down over a few drinks. They did not turn the retirement system and Medicaid into a funded system. The trust fund, was, it was a fig, accounting figment. It never happened. The savings never happened. Um, so where, where else do we get the money? We got it from abroad. How much of the savings of poor um, Indians and, and Chinese did we take? We took all of it. Um, how much of an impact did that have on the mortgage market? Not much. There wasn't enough money there to get from foreign sources. Why? Because the Treasury was competing at, uh, with us for massive deficits. I'm going to go a little bit. Uh, so, so I'm going to spend one minute on this side, then I've got to move on. China's policy, we, we had a, a major debate over the last two weeks. The BIS said that our, treasure, our monetary system was out of control with their short-term policy, and our new chairman, Janet Yellen, responded um, in a speech using the term macroprudential regulation 29 times. Anybody know what that means? It's a total oxymoron. China's uh, strategy for economic growth was to stimulate savings, but then drive that savings into business investment so you could grow the economy. The first part worked. The second part didn't work very well because when you got the government driving investment, you tend to have a lot of malinvestment, and they've got a real problem. What we tried to do in the short run is the same thing as in the long run. We discouraged saving. We try to inflate asset value so people think they're rich when they're really not. The, Fed, the, the fairies at the Fed do not create wealth by creating asset bubbles. It's all nominal. It doesn't make people wealthier. And then we end up with malinvestment driving that um, uh, extra savings into investments that aren't going to pay off. So we're right back where we started in the subprime lending boom. Uh, there's a deficit problem. I wish I could talk about it more. The fact is we cannot tax our way out of the deficit. People at the bottom half of the income distribution don't have the residual resources to save and pay more taxes. And people at the top half are already paying 60%, half of which is going to transfers. So it's not going to happen that we're going to tax our way out. Um, we, if we want to grow out of the uh, fiscal problem so that there's more money left for savings, we'd have to generate an economic growth rate of about 2%. That's not going to happen because we need more business investment, but we already have the most high-tax businesses in the world. So none of this adds up. And in fact, the IMF looked at this in 2014, and they said, how are countries like the United States going to get out of this? So, well, you don't want to default. Well, we'll change the 30-day debt into 30-year debt at the same rate, and we won't call that a default. Or we'll confiscate all of the private wealth assets, and we won't call that um, a default. There's no easy way out of this. Uh, the CBO is always wrong. Um, the deficits are going to be much bigger. So when we get into the acceptance stage of this, we're going to realize that we can't continue to generate economic rents to distribute the way we are in the past because we don't have the savings to fund that mortgage finance. I understand the politicians don't want to hear this. This is a, an existential threat because it says that really all this political interference ends up with more crony capitalism than it does um, benefit households. So what do we need? We need more productive work, more savings. Um, we need to go back to a market system with market incentives for uh, savings, borrowing, and insurance. I'm not saying that it's easy. The first political reality is, uh, while most economists say we should get rid of deposit insurance and put the risks on depositors, it's not going to happen, okay? Um, one way out was that we could default by inflating. But all of those um, claims, those liabilities that we'd like to default on are indexed to inflation. So it's almost impossible. The second reality is the deposit insurance is here to stay, so we've got to fix, fix bank regulation. What are the implications for housing policy? Depoliticize it. We have to go back to a market system of incentives. I'll take two minutes just for my introduction. 
Okay, um, so the political obsession with fixed rate mortgages is wrong. When we funded fixed rate mortgages, 85% of the liabilities were in fixed nominal contracts like those annuities. Now it's down to 15%. Nobody does fixed rate mortgages anymore. It was a source of systemic risk from the country. Um, implications for borrowing rates. Well, Chairman Bernanke for 150,000 per speech will tell you what I'll tell you he says, that we, the interest rates won't rise in his lifetime, which may be the next 30 years. That's good news and bad news for borrower affordability, right? The bad news is that it means we have stagnation for the next 25 years like Japan did. So that's not a particularly good outcome. Or if we have economic growth, we're going to have rising interest rates. Um, if you have a private system that's fully capitalized, then it is true mortgage rates will have to rise. But that's all because there'll be implicit revenues going back to the Treasury, mostly in terms of tax. And you could take those same revenues and transparently budget them for homeowner subsidies for their mortgages. So it's not, the problem is not that we're going to make mortgage borrowing more expensive. The problem is that that would have to be transparently done and it would take the economic rents out, not for the borrowers, but for the politicians and all the other economic rent seekers. Um, cash down payments. There's no point in arguing about zero down payments if there's no money in the system, right? So we ought to go back to the uh, down payment system that encouraged savings for, for the borrowers. Uh, CF, I don't want to talk about this com uh, consumer credit. It's the worst, least accountable entity. I, I would say that I don't think the benefits are going to exceed the cost, but I doubt there'll ever be any, any benefit of it. it because, because it's a non-market, it's created um, against market interests. Um, the U.S. obsession with mortgage capital markets is anachronistic. All of this took place when we thought the money was in the retirement system. That's not going to necessarily be true in the future. So we're way too focused on the myopia of what the, the, the rent seekers and the investment banking community say we need, and not enough focus on um, where the money is and what do we need to get to it. Um, can guarantees really be limited? There's a lot of discussion that you're, you're discussing programs of limited guarantees. It's never happened because it was never the politicians who granted the guarantees in the first place. Wall Street decided that the, these institutions were guaranteed by the government, not politicians. Um, the guarantee myth that we need guarantees for um, these securitizations. Look, there's 17 trillion of US government guaranteed securities out there right now earning about zero real interest rate. Pen, private uh, public pension funds are looking to make 8% real interest rate. They don't want zero return investments. They want risky investments where the returns equal the risk. Thank you, Mark. Well, Thank you, Kevin. I think that was helpful to, to be reminded that mortgage finance does take a place within a broader environment of fiscal monetary policy. And so I sure, certainly should emphasize, um, you know, to me, there are at least a dozen different things that contribute to the financial crisis. You know, I'm, I'm solely going to talk about mortgage finance, but that in no way should be interpreted uh, as excusing the rest of them. Uh, I've also, uh, so for my own benefit up there is my Twitter handle. So every time I look down and see somebody looking at their phone, I'm just going to tell myself that you're live tweeting my remarks. <laughs> I don't see how much of that actually works out. Um, but uh, let me first start out, with, you know, and touch upon something. Is those of you up here who've even been uh, at a distance related to mortgage finance policy, almost all of these discussions revolve around, you know, it's about home ownership, Apple Pie, America. It's, you know, you, you can't talk about it without that. So I just want to very quickly um, put the question out there and say to ourselves, you know, does home ownership merit subsidy anyhow? Because that's again, that's what a lot of the debate is about. Uh, and first, the uh, academic evidence is very, very clear. Homeownership is correlated with a lot of positive outcomes. You know, homeowners vote more, their, ch their children are more likely to, to uh, graduate from college. All these things have been found in the data. Um, so let me also say, one of the things that's helpful to repeat to yourself at least once a day is, correlation does not equal causality. We know that homeownership's correlated with a lot of these outcomes. We have no, there's been nothing in the, the scholarship that shows that it causes these outcomes. So maybe a, a short way to think about it is, uh, does homeownership cause people to be more responsible or is it likely that more responsible people become homeowners? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, it's also worth keeping in mind that homeownership does not, is not without its costs. Uh, the interesting thing about this cycle economically is historically in recessions, the mobility rates of homeowners increase. You know, people leave, you know, you might be uh, in Las Vegas where there are no jobs, so you move to Dallas to find a job. Uh, unfortunately, this time around, the mobility rate of homeowners declined, 
We've had more people stuck in place, riding it out rather than moving to other parts of the country. And I certainly think as an economist, one cannot overemphasize, we did not have the same economic environment everywhere in the country. You know, Dallas has performed differently than Las Vegas or San Francisco. And of course, as we all know, Washington has done swimmingly. Uh, it's not necessarily for the right reasons, however. Um, so again, we've reduced this mobility. We've locked people in place. There are a number of empirical studies that reach the conclusion that uh, your higher homeownership rates, and these are studies that have been done across country, across states within the U.S., higher your homeownership rate, the higher level of unemployment you have in recessions. And again, that's a finding that's in the literature. Of course, again, cause, uh, correlation is not causality, but it's highly suggestive to me. Also important to keep in mind that the marginal and average homeowner are not the same person. And the importance of that is, even if homeownership is correlated on average with all these nice things that we like, that doesn't mean that the marginal, that is that homeowner who would not be a homeowner other than for the policy intervention, is going to be the same person as the average homeowner. So again, something can be an average good, but it might not be very good for the person who's just on the margin. Uh, let me also keep in mind, you know, economists, we talk about, you know, often the, the rationale for a subsidy is because something generates a quote unquote positive externality. That means I do something uh, and you get some positive benefit out of it that you don't pay me for, and therefore I should be subsidized to do more of it. Um, the evidence uh, is fairly clear that the positive externalities for homeownership, and you could think about this as, you know, do you live next to somebody who, you know, mows their lawn and doesn't keep trash in the front or have a car up on blocks, um, like the people I probably grew up, or, uh, grew up with out in Virginia when I was younger. That said, um, those externalities are local. You know, it's really a big impact uh, on somebody who lives across the street. So the question is, you know, why should I here in Washington subsidize somebody in Des Moines to mow their lawn? I mean, I'm not getting the direct benefit of it. So again, to the extent that these are, there are positive real subsidies, to the extent that they improve outcomes, they are either very localized to the family or very localized to the community in question. Let me also say, uh, you know, and again, you work on Capitol Hill, I worked on Capitol Hill for a number of years. Every other person who comes in the door tells you what a great thing it would be if you gave a subsidy for their industry and how many more jobs it would create. I'm sure every single one of you have seen more job impact studies than you can remember. That's what's shopped around. They are grossly exaggerated. Uh, certainly, let's think about housing for a second. We all need a place to live. So um, an apartment building is not all that different than a condo. It actually takes the same amount of construction workers to build an apartment building where somebody rents than it does for someone to live in a condo. There is nothing specific about the tenure that increases jobs. Because again, we all have to live somewhere. So I think you should be very skeptical um, of those job arguments that you often hear. Uh, Kevin touched upon this, but the chart you're looking at here, the larger bar is the homeownership rate by 10 years, which is taken from the decennial census. The lower bar is the GSE, that's Fannie and Freddie market share. And the point is, is that we hit long-term trend homeownership rates in this country in about 1960. The growth of Fannie and Freddie, which really in the 70s, where they had single-digit market shares. They were irrelevant to the mortgage market before the SNL crisis. And the point of this slide is that the growth of Fannie and Freddie has seen no long-term increase in homeownership rates. So it's fine to say that we want to do things for homeownership, but maybe we might actually want to do things that do things for homeownership, rather than things that just claim to do things for homeownership. One of the things we actually have delivered on, we haven't delivered for more homeownership. This is, again, the higher bar that's about homeownership. The lower bar is the average um, loan to value for the house. Uh, and so I'll say, say as an aside, I mean, again, this is, this is in some sense ancient history, but it always surprises me to think that before 1960, the majority of homeowners owned their homes free and clear, no mortgage at all. It was actually their house, not the bank's house. Um, this chart again shows the increasing level of leverage in households. So what all of these subsidies have done, they haven't delivered homeownership, but we have delivered getting households f swimming over their heads in debt. We've achieved that. I'm not sure that that's a worthwhile public policy goal, but again, that's one, that's one that we've uh, clearly accomplished. Uh, I would certainly say that I think part of that does relate to we have used that debt to run up house prices, which are not shown here, but that debt has not run up homeownership rates. Uh, Kevin touched on this really quickly, but you know the original rationale for the GSEs, for, for certainly Fannie Mae created in the 30s, Freddie was not created until much later, a federal home loan bank system, even the Federal Reserve to some extent. All of these institutions were created in the, in the 30s. Of course, the Fed created in 1913. These institutions were created because we had a very fragmented banking system. And so it might seem like a long time ago, but until the mid-90s, if you were in Texas, a bank was limited to one location. Uh, of course, that means if the biggest employer in town goes belly up, then it's pretty likely the bank's going to go belly up. So you had a lack of geographic 
uh, diversification, that many of these interventions like Fannie Mae were meant to solve that. Uh, by contrast, Canada, which uh, had the same, if you look at the GDP in the Great Depression here in the US and look at Canada, they had similarly had a Great Depression. We had thousands of, literally thousands, tens of thousands of bank failures. Canada had zero. They didn't have a Fed. They didn't have an FDIC. But they did have about six banks that basically were well diversified across the country. So again, many of these interventions have tried to substitute for a lack of geographic diversification, a lack of product diversification in our banking system. And so the point would be, uh, I don't know, I think Bank of America is at 49 states now, but we essentially have a number of very large banks. We have a very large number of regional banks um, that are generally well diversified geographically. It's interesting enough that if you look at, for instance, um, Yes, there are two big to fail uh, issues with all the big banks, uh, but they are also able to go to market in the same way that the GSEs are, uh, but the small banks of the past were not. So I would argue to some extent the lack of access to capital markets, uh, the lack of geographic diversification, that's a problem we've, that's a problem we've solved. Now, of course, we've brought some other problems with it too, but those can be addressed. Um, also important to keep in mind, it's often presented as if we get rid of Fannie and Freddie, there's somehow no subsidies for the mortgage market. Or we have no backstop. You know, we certainly need to remember the Federal Reserve purchased a trillion dollars in mortgage-backed securities. Uh, the European Central Bank purchased about 700 billion in covered mortgage bonds in the EU. We have lenders of last resort. We have backstops for the mortgage market. We continue to have federal home loan banks. So I would submit that we could end Fannie and Freddie, not replace them with anything, and we would still lead the world in mortgage socialism. You know, we have a, we are still massive government interventions in that market. Um, and of course, one of the questions often asked is, if we don't have Fannie and Freddie, who do we have? Well, first, let me say, and I think this touched upon a lot of the leverage issues and touched upon some of the issues that Kevin has raised. Um, I don't really look at this as an issue of how do we replace the entire 10 trillion some mortgage market. I think we have households that are way too massively leveraged, uh, and we really, and realistically, at the size of our housing market and housing prices, should be more thinking about a six or seven trillion dollar mortgage market rather than a 10. Again, I don't think all of this leverage has brought stability and certainly has not been good for households. Also important to keep in mind, average originations are about a trillion a year. We don't need to replace the entire mortgage market overnight. Every single plan, whether it's Henson-Lean's PATH Act or even Max and Waters plan or, or the Quirk of Warner, all of these have transition periods. Um, nobody seems to be uh, recommending an overnight fix. It's all a six to seven to 10 year problem. Uh, at that rate, we can replace the entire mortgage market if we continue to flow it overhand. Um, so who would fund this? Well, the securitization system we have was promised to be something that connected Main Street to Wall Street, but the reality is the majority, massive majority of funding for our mortgage market still came from other financial institutions. So this is a bit of a simplified example, but it wasn't unusual in the crisis for, say, Bank of America to take 1,000 mortgages, sell those 1,000 mortgages to Fannie Mae. Fannie Mae wraps those 1,000 mortgages into a mortgage-backed security and sells it back to Bank of America that they hold on their balance sheet. Now, why would you have this roundabout process that, of course, add costs and, and add complexity to the model? Well, yes, in that model, Fannie takes the credit risk from Bank of America. Bank of America still takes the interest rate risk. But more importantly for Bank of America, under our current capital rules for banks, they cut their capital more in half by holding a mortgage-backed security rather than the whole mortgage. So our current system, combined with the capital standards we have for banks, encourages massive leverage in our mortgage market. My back of the envelope is looking solely at the institutional, so the bank, the GSE, that side of the mortgage market. Our mortgage market at the time of the crisis was leveraged 60 to 1. That to me is a recipe for a disaster. And of course, as we know, Fannie and Freddie's guarantee business was leveraged over 200 to 1. So I don't care about the quality of your mortgages. If you're leveraged 200 to 1, you will fail someday. It's a guarantee. Uh, and so just absolute lack of capital in the system. So what I, what I would propose is a system that we need to look forward to, look, go, go back to in a sense. And again, there are lots of problems with the SNL crisis that was deposit-based. I think some of those things we've addressed, some we still need to address. Um, but most of the rest of the world, developed world, they rely on a deposit system. Uh, to me, it also reduces what economists call asymmetric information problems, which are kind of those problems of, I'm going to make you a loan. Do I think you're going to pay me back or not? Uh, so we went from an originate where I made the loan, held it to a world and the crisis where we originated it, sold it off to somebody else, who sold it off to somebody else, who sold it off to somebody else. Uh, and so in a world where the ma lender makes the loan locally, the lender has a sense of, you know, is your current employer likely to be around? 
you've lost your job, are you currently likely to get it back? What's the local economy like? Uh, and so I think there's a way that you can do that where you can gather what I would call that soft lo uh, local information into the lending process that we have lost um, and solves, again, solves some of those problems. As I mentioned earlier, securitization was completely Basel capital uh, standard driven, uh, not really, in my opinion, driven by the real economic benefits of the activities. Uh, as, I, as I touched upon, I think we could actually reduce uh, foreclosures and do better loss mitigation if the person who originated the loan held the loan. Because again, if you go to the local branch of the bank where you made the loan, that branch manager has a good sense of, well, you know, you've lost your job, but I know your employer's laying off and I know he's going to hire again once things get started. Or they can figure out, well, this person's never got to get that job back. I mean, they can do a much better job. One of the hardest things in loss mitigation is trying to figure out of the people who are behind on their mortgages, who's got the chance to get back on their feet and who doesn't. And I think if you have that local knowledge that, that is embedded in that, you could make much better decisions in that regard. And of course, you don't have to get into all these negotiations with different tranche holders in the mortgage-backed securities. The bank locally can make that, self, make that decision itself. Um, mentioned as well the, the, the diversity, economic, uh, geographic diversity problem I think we've done with. Uh, also keep in mind, um, so much of our mortgage market was capital markets funded during the crisis. And so whether it was overnight lending, uh, these things aren't as sticky as deposits. And what I mean by deposits being sticky, and of course, some of this is attributed to deposits insurance, some of it is attributed to human behavior, um, deposits generally stay with the banks. They stay within the banking system. Uh, I think one of the things that's not widely recognized throughout the financial crisis, and you can go to the FDIC website, check this for yourself, insured deposits, total deposits in the banking system increased throughout the financial crisis. Yes, people were taking their deposits out of IndyMac and WAMU and these troubled institutions. They were not putting them under their pillows. They were putting them in other banks that were safe. Um, and so again, it just means the business shifts from, in my opinion, mismanaged banks to better managed banks. Uh, but you don't see deposits leave the same system in the same way uh, that we saw funding leave their overnight repurchase markets and other capital market model driven uh, of the mortgage market. Let me also note, we actually fund a lot of different other types of activity in the United States without guarantees. What you see here, the, the lighter line, the blue line is uh, auto sales and the red line is uh, housing starts. So uh, unsurprisingly, housing starts and auto sales followed each other down during the recession. They are subject to a lot of the same economic forces that drive them. The big spike there in the auto is uh, cash for clunkers. You know, and, and interestingly enough, after cash for clunkers, we basically went back to trend. So it certainly didn't change things in the long run. But the point being here is that despite the fact that we don't have a GSE for auto loans, which uh, I recognize we did bail out a couple of auto companies, uh, but that said, that doesn't affect the financing side as much. Um, we saw autos recover at the same rate as the economy in a way that the housing market has not and did not, despite all these guarantees. Uh, this is a similar chart with the mortgage market being the hump shape. Uh, and the other chart is consumer uh, borrowing, not including autos. So this is things like short-term installment loans, uh, credit card loans. And so the point being is that here again, the recovery matched the recovery in the economy. And of course, the economy recovery is weak, but it, it recovered along with the rest of the economy, whereas the mortgage and housing market did not. And so the point with these two slides is that we've thrown these massive guarantees at the mortgage market, and yet the mortgage market continues to be weaker. The housing market continues to be weaker than other segments of the economy, which it traditionally moves with. So you have to ask yourself, what, what exactly are we getting for all, for all these guarantees we're throwing at this? Uh, just to give you some example of sort of how the auto loan market works, too. Um, Despite, again, the fact that we have no GSE, we have no auto loan GSE, you can get auto loans at relatively affordable rates. They're only slightly above mortgage rates. You can actually get them fixed for up to five years, sometimes seven years. The reason why I think that's important in the mortgage market is the typical life of a mortgage is only seven years. People do not keep a 30-year mortgage for 30 years. Uh, and so the fact is, is we can manage that interest rate risk for some amount of time. Um, again, we've saw some recovery. Interestingly enough, a lot of the debate, and Kevin touched, touched upon the uh, down payment issue, a lot of the opposition in mortgage finance reform is this sense of if we, people had to put up down payments, you'd exclude a lot of people. The auto loan is an interesting uh, area because the auto loans are pretty much underwater the second you drive off a lot. So these are very high LTV loans. Yet, we saw during this crisis, and we saw regularly, that auto loans perform better than housing loans. Now, of course, I suspect that it might have something to do with the fact that if you don't pay your car loan over a long amount of time, you will go outside of your house one day and your car will be gone. Well, funny how that incentivizes people to pay. Um, obviously, as we know, on the other hand, I believe the median time to get somebody out of their house in the city of Chicago is 1,000 days after they've stopped paying their mortgage. 
thousand days over three years. Um, I'm in no way implying that people are lazy or people are game in the system. I'm simply implying that three years of free rent sounds pretty damn attractive. Uh, it might actually change a few people's incentives. Uh, I mentioned earlier the decline in mobility rates. It might actually encourage you to stay in place too. If you are in Orlando or Chicago and you've lost your job and you're looking at the fact of, I can get three years rent free or I can you know, move to Dallas, Texas and try to find a job and pay my own rent, that is going to change people's decisions on the margin. So of course, if you want to subsidize people and assist people, that's a legitimate, important debate to have. You can do it in a way that does not lock them in place. You know, if you want to give cash for keys, you want to give relocation assistance, you want to pay somebody's rent for six months, um, I'm not in favor of those things, but those things would be far more effective than the programs that we have chosen to do because we have chosen to lock people in place. Uh, also important to keep in mind, uh, and this is one of my great frustrations as an economist, because if you, you know, spend a lot of time around economists and you read economics journals, they spend a lot of time debating and arguing about market failure and market can't do this and market can't do that. Uh, and then they sort of just wave a magic wand and say, okay, and then therefore this beneficial, all-knowing social planner will come in and fix everything. And I'm like, I'm the first to say we should have legitimate, realistic, real-world models of markets. Count me in. We should also have legitimate, real-world, realistic models of government. Uh, it is not an all-knowing social planner. So some of the things I think need to be kept in mind in terms of any sort of government reform in the mortgage finance system. And, see, there, and, and these are also um, you know, some of my observations from having worked on the Hill, but also sort of my observations of having studied public choice and, and some uh, influence of government. First of all, all insurance premiums in any system are going to be underpriced. Government is simply not going to charge an actually fair rate. We've seen this with flood insurance. We see it with TRIA. We see it with mortgage insurance. We see it with Social Security. The political incentives are always to underprice those premiums. Uh, it's also important to keep in mind any system is going to be pro-cyclical. And what I mean by that is, uh, I could, you could imagine if your boss was going to go out and campaign on, well, the housing market's a little heated. I think we need to bring your price of your house down. You're not going to get reelected on that. Uh, and guess what? You know, my experience on the banking committee staff is that the re financial regulators largely uh, within their discretion bend to the will of the oversight committees. And if the oversight committees and we're in the midst of a bubble and everybody feels like they're making a lot of money, no regulator, no politician who's got any sense is going to stand up against that. The system in itself will look the other way. We're in a bubble and then the system will overreact and clamp down when the bubble goes bust. So the point is, is you really need to have market incentives that lean against that. If you look at companies like Enron or WorldCom or Fannie Mae, the short sellers identified problems in those companies long before the SEC or any other regulators. You have to have people who have incentives to bring pessimism, to, to, to go out there and expose the fraud, because again, the political system will push the opposite. As, as I mentioned, I spent my time as the bubble was building on the banking committee, and I can tell you for every one person who came in my door who raised some concern about the, the housing market being unstable, I had a hundred other people who came in my door saying, there's this great wealth-making machine called home ownership. We should get more people into it. Um, that's got to be what's going to happen again. I'm certain that I will live to see the day in which somebody tells me again that housing prices only go up. Um, again, also another thing to keep in mind, uh, and, and Kevin touched upon this with Social Security, all federal insurance programs are cash flow. There's no lockbox for anything. Uh, this is even true for the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Banks pay premium, pay, pay premiums. What we do with those premiums is we put them in treasuries. So treasury gives us pieces of paper, we put it in FDIC. This is what would work under Corker Warner. This would work under all, all these other things. What does treasury do with the money you give them for the treasury bills? They spend it. There is no assets in there. There's only an empty promise that will have to be recovered by taxes at some point. Uh, so again, any insurance program is fundamentally going to be cash flow. I've certainly seen on the other side, I remember years where I spent arguing with the Appropriations Committee where they decided that FHA, the Federal Housing Commission, was throwing off lots of excess cash that they could spend, which they did spend. Uh, and I said, your scoring is ridiculous. Said this to CBO. Uh, I turned out being right. They turned out being wrong, but it doesn't make a difference now because all that money's been spent. So again, this is going to be uh, the way these programs are always going to run. It's also important to keep in mind, you know, and you're going to see this, we're going to see this increasing on Capitol Hill, is the budget pressures continue to increase in the future years. The attractiveness for politicians will be, how do I give transfers in a way that aren't reflected on the budget? And one way to do that is you create contingent liabilities that don't show up in the budget. And there's no better way and there's no more attractive area to do this in mortgage, than, than mortgage finance because it's just such a big market and you can hide these subsidies in a way where they don't come back and blow up until later and it's somebody else's problem. And of course, as Kevin mentioned, at that point, you can always blame greedy Wall Street. 
Also, let me say, you know, the the, the event was not a tail event. Uh, you know, one of the things to keep in mind, and, and you know, the competition and guarantees don't mix. Let's go back to our Econ 101. A vigorously competitive market means that you earn essentially zero rents. That you that nobody earns, earns excess profits. That failure is pushed to the margin. And so, if you have a system, and I actually think one of the reasons that we had a crisis was we went from a world in the 70s and 80s where the banking markets were very uncompetitive to a world where mortgage finance became increasingly competitive. And the problem is that all of the competitive players, whether it was the banks or the GSCs, had guarantees. So when they went out of business and made losses, the taxpayer was called upon. Now, I'm a big fan of competition. I think competition brings consumer choice. I think it brings efficiencies. But we as a society need to make a choice. We cannot have our cake and eat it too. We can either have extensive guarantees, which means you have monopolies and stagnation, but you have some semblance of stability, or you can have competition where there's wide choices for consumers. You cannot have both. If you have vigorous competition and guarantees, you will pay out at some point, guaranteed. Also important to keep in mind is that, you know, I sort of quip that I'm going to see a day where people tell me the housing market only goes up. Uh, we haven't fixed the housing business cycle. There's going to be a boom and bust again, maybe sooner rather than later. And any sort of finance reform, mortgage finance reform, has to assume that we're going to see another bust again. Uh, and part of the problem here to me is fundamentally what we've done with all these guarantee of creditors uh, is we've had government regulations substitute for the market discipline that you would see. And so just think about it. You know, the regulators who never lose their jobs are being responsible for overseeing this. And we've told the creditors in the system not to pay attention because they won't lose anything. Uh, and so to me, there's just very weak incentives. Uh, I would challenge you to think of any regulator who actually has paid the price for doing a poor job last time around. Of course, my favorite example is, uh, I think it's arguably, uh, there is no regulator who did a worse job in the crisis than New York Federal Reserve. Absolutely none. I'm happy later people want to ask to detail their various failings during the crisis. And so what did we do after the New York Fed failed tremendously? We gave their president a promotion to Treasury Secretary. Good for him. What kind of incentives does that send the system? You can screw up, you can pay this attention, you could not regulate, uh, and we're never ever gonna hold you responsible. Um, and of course, to me, if you wanna have a system where there's monitoring that's effective, people who put their own money at risk, who lose that money, who lose their jobs and go out of business will have far greater incentive to pay attention to the system. Uh, but you're not gonna have that as long as you're protecting creditors, we're protecting people from their downside. Also make a quick point, uh, some of the argument about homeownership is that housing is safe. What you're seeing here is a five-year moving average of house prices back to 1890, which is put together at Bob Shale, uh, Bob Schiller at Yale. Um, the point here is you see pretty wide springs in housing. So the, the argument that is essentially a safe asset that always performs well and you're never going to lose money uh, has not been true, has never been true. Uh, it's a risky investment. That's not saying you shouldn't. All investments are risky, but you shouldn't go into it thinking it's going to be a, a win with no, no problems. I'm going to just quickly, so we can wrap up soon, skip over some of the borrower protection issues and 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 Dodd-Frank, unless people want to talk about this at some point. also want to make a quick point. Um, this chart is uh, credit score of the borrower versus loan to value. And this is FHA, so it's, you know, risk, you know, best safest mortgages there are. They're all fisc grade. We're not talking prepayment penalties. We're not talking any crazy features. Uh, and what you see is the scores are normalized. So in the far uh, right corner at the top where it says 1.0, that is probably the prime, that is a prime borrower who puts uh, down a sizable down payment and everything else uh, is normalized as a multiple of that. So in the far other corner, we can see that borrowers who have LTVs over 95% who have FICOs under 580 are eight times more likely to default uh, than borrowers who are prime borrowers who put a submission, uh, sufficient amount of uh, equity down. The point here is, despite all the talk, and, and Kevin touched upon that QM doesn't do anything about LTV, it also doesn't do anything about FICO. Uh, Almost all of the attention in Dodd-Frank to mortgage finance reform are over product features, like down payment, like documentation. Um, let me be very clear, tremendous amount of data and evidence on this. Those things are rounding errors when it comes to, to, comes to the credit score of the borrower and the down payment. And so we have learned you can make loans to poor credit borrowers if there's a sizable down payment. You could also make loans with no down payments if it's a prime borrower. If you, however, make a low down payment loan to a subprime borrower, you will not get your money back. And that's been repeatedly proven over and over again. Uh, and so to me, we need to be able to focus on that mortgage finance. I'll, certainly, I'll say as an aside, it's, it's, it's certainly one interesting thing. We are the only developed country in the world where somebody with a history of not paying their bills can get a mortgage. 
It's just true. You go to Europe, try, you, if you have a history of not paying your bills, or even say in socialist France, if you don't pay your mortgage, they garnish your wages. So we are massively borrower friendly. That's fine, that's a political decision, but I think we should be open uh, to, to the ramifications of it. What this does tell me, however, we do not need guarantees for prime borrowers who make down payments. All of the debate about mortgage, federal government guarantees for the mortgage market is about subprime borrowers who don't make large down payments. That is what the complete debate is about. If people don't want to say that, they're just not being transparent about what they want to say. Uh, so some of the policy principles I will leave you with is, is reform. Um, and again, I'm happy to talk about uh, having tortured myself with reading Corker Warner, Crapo Johnson, and PATH Act, and the many of the bills out there. I'm happy to talk about those as we go forward, even though I think for this Congress, they're essentially dead. I don't see mortgage finance reform happening in this Congress. So I hope in the future what's born in mind is we should have no capital arbitrage. So if you have a federal charter and you hold a mortgage, you hold the same amount of capital as everybody else who has a federal charter who holds a mortgage. Uh, I do think we need to get away from picking uh, winners and losers in terms of which uh, sectors of society. Uh, one of the things that, in my opinion, why we've seen decades of wage stagnation uh, is because we haven't invested in things that increase labor productivity. You want to make, you want to see wages grow up, make workers more productive. Bidding up the price of housing does not make workers more productive. Build plant, build equipment, build human capital. Um, and you can certainly do all those things poorly as well, but those are things that at least have a chance of increasing wages and reducing wage stagnation. I also think you know, risk bearing should be transparent. Uh, we shouldn't have it off budget. There should be no contingent liabilities. Uh, I don't think we should also use finance as a tool for redistribution of income. Uh, if you want to do transfers, do them on budget, do them appropriated, do them. Uh, there are a variety of ways to do that honestly. Hiding these things are, in my opinion, ways are just going to come back and blow, blow up at you.